via Facebook what I was going to be for um, Halloween this year. And uh, three years ago, I had one of those costumes that didn't actually really work out for me. <laughs> it didn't work out for anyone, actually. And uh, it's, it's documented online somewhere. You'll see a picture of that. I think two years ago, I was an Army soldier. I borrowed Ray Kim's uh, fatigues and, uh, you know, colored myself. And last year, I missed it. So this year, we're looking forward to it. And she asked me what I was going to be. So I wrote online, I'm going to be a superhero with, super, with special powers. And oh, Miriam was you, right? And then you might, you might be wondering, what, what, why wasn't I? And my su superhero power was the invisible man, right? <laughs> I, <laughs> I wasn't here. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to make it. Um, my, my wife's uh, cousin was getting married uh, last weekend up, up north in the Bay Area, and she asked us to come, and she asked me if I would preside for the wedding, so it conflicted with the fall festival, so we were there with family instead with, with all of you here. And from the pictures, man, we missed a great, great time. Uh, some amazing costumes by not so much the kids. <laughs> the kids were kind of a letdown, but the adults, that was awesome. Uh, I loved uh, all the crayons, the CM ministry workers, and art as the box. That is like, that's gold. That is so uh, creative. And um, I loved, uh, you know, I, um, Stephen and Kathy. I, I thought he was just being a nerd and a Boy Scout. And I was like, wow, that, that fits him really well. And then it was after a few days when my wife pointed out, he's not just a regular guy. He's a character from Up and the Boy Scout, and he should have like uh, put pow white powder in his hair. Then I would have gotten it, but because of that, I didn't really... But I think the best costume, I think, Joe, you won, right? You won the Transformer costume. Actually, it should have been Rosie, because I heard Rosie made the costume. <laughs> you just put it on, but that was very nice. And my uh, biggest regret was uh, missing out on the special presentation by Run DMC, you know? <laughs> In my high school days, I never got to see them in concert, but to know that they visited us with their bling and their 70s style hair, man, I was, I was, uh, I was neat to see. And now, I, I, I guess somebody videotaped the Run DMC performance. Yes? No? No? I hope somebody did, because I do want to see that. So if you have it and you don't want to publish it, you can upload it on YouTube on a secret link and send it to me and Sarim. <laughs> and we won't share it with anyone else. Well, we were up there with our uh, relatives and uh, uh, both non-Christians. They had their wedding at a winery, outdoor wedding, and a very secular crowd, about 100 people. They were calling me Father James. <laughs> it's like, wow. It's like, you know, what do I do? They were calling me a reverend. They were calling me priest. They were asking me if I was going to wear a robe, you know, where my hat was. I was like, oh, just Pastor James is fine. And so, you know, I couldn't go up there and preach like an hour sermon. They would have thrown grapes at me. Um, so I was really wrestling with what to preach. And, and a lot of what we're learning about the gospel, and I realized, um, I think Luther said one of the most difficult things to do as a student of the Bible, is to distinguish law from grace. Old and New Testament. That is the greatest challenge for a student of the Bible, to distinguish between law and grace. And what I, what I had been doing is, 
even during weddings, I would go and preach the law to couples. I would go up there, and if you've been to Cornerstone Weddings, I would tell the husbands, you have three words that describe your responsibilities, right? Learner, lover, and leader. If you do well, you'll succeed, blessed life. If you fail, misery. You'll ruin your marriage. And I'll give the wife one word. Your word is to submit. Submit to your husband. You submit, God will bless you. If you are rebellious, then God will not bless you, and you'll ruin your marriage. And so in that joyous occasion, I would stir fear in the husband and wife. They'll be convicted, and they'll become restless, and they'll be reminded of all the responsibilities waiting for them to be blessed by God. And I realized, of all the days where I should be preaching the gospel, it should be on their wedding day and at funerals. There are two days where I must be preaching the gospel, and I'm learning again to preach the gospel in those special occasions. So I knew because of the outdoor wedding, the sun was right on me again. At about five, ten minutes, I gave a very simple message. We're in a winery, great debate about who makes the best wine, but I know who makes the best wine is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, his first miracle was, was a guest at a wedding, and they ran out of wine. They went to Jesus, and he made the best wine. The wine taster said, this is the sweetest wine he's ever had. This is the best wine ever. And I told them, um, on your wedding day, you're full of hope and love and strength and confidence. And Jesus might be just a guest to you, but one day your wine will run out. Your love, your strength, your confidence, your hope will run out. And that's when Jesus will become important to you. And on that day when you go to him uh, with just what's left over with your life, he won't turn you away. He won't reject you. He'll meet you at your need. He'll forgive you of your sins committed against him, against one another, against other people. He will wash it away and he will take what you have left over and he will transform it into the sweetest thing possible, which is the love of God. I was able to preach the gospel message that wedding and it was just a joyous time where uh, we believe Christ was exalted and I, I, we felt like we met the family at their need but all the more, we preached the gospel. God gave us grace to do that. So uh, while you were ministering here, and while Pastor Dan was faithfully preaching God's word here, there was ministry going on at a winery in Sonoma Valley uh, last, last Saturday, last Sunday. You know, I only missed one Sunday, but it seems like uh, I missed so much. Just being away just one weekend is, uh, is huge, and so it's a, it's a real joy be back again with the church family. Now, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, we've been doing this for the past several months now. So if you have your Bibles, please open, open it to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll study today verses 20 through 22. 20 through 22. Now last week, it was or two weeks ago, it was about Paul telling Timothy uh, how to engage and respond to false teachers who are disrupting uh, the faith of many Christians. They're upsetting uh, the faith of many sincere believers by their corrupting, uh, contagious uh, heresy. And verse 19 really cements that teaching by reminding Timothy and all of us of God's sovereignty that no matter what the false teachers do, they cannot 
cause one of God's people to go astray. That is not possible. The Lord knows those who belong to him. And all the evil guiles of false teachers and heretics all over the world, they have no power to take away a single Christian from their position with God that is set, secure, cemented, and God's word declares it in his sovereignty. And in, in an indirect way, Paul is reminding Timothy and all of us, we must not be anxious. We must not be afraid and driven by restlessness in proclaiming the truth and defending it from error, lest somehow by our faithlessness, we will cause one of the Christians to stumble. So the fear is because of my weakness in explaining the scriptures or defending doctrine, a believer might become ensnared with error and go astray. Timothy, that is not possible. The eternal security of Christians is not dependent upon false teachers, and it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent, it's dependent upon God's power, God's might, God's sovereignty, and it is secure. And not only for their salvation, but their sanctification. Let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It is an imperative command. It is a reality that every Christian will depart from sin. It takes some longer than others, right? Some are more quicker to depart from iniquity, but sanctification is secure for, promised for every believer established by God. And so Paul moved into this analogy of a foundation and of a household, and he extends that uh, in verse 20. He speaks of a large house, a great house, a home whose owners were very affluent, who were very rich. They had many rooms, many furnishings, and therefore they had many vessels, uh, many uh, utensils, many cups, many plates, calls them vessels, kios, right? Some are made for gold and silver, others out of wood and clay. And those that are made for gold and silver are made for honorable use. They're used for honorable purposes. And you understand what, what that's about. If special guests come over, you bring out the fine china, right? You don't bring out the mug from Cornerstone 20th, 10th anniversary. You don't bring that. You hide that. You bring out the fine china you bought at a, at a nice store in Mikasa, whatever. I don't know, Macy's, right? And then if I come over, you bring out, right, the styrofoam cups. and <laughs> You bring out the paper plates, right? So we have, even in our own household, vessels for honor, vessels for dishonor. Large house as well. It was gold and silver, wood and clay. Um, years ago, I had uh, a guy, Serena and I, were, we had some fat people over from the church who were eating dinner together. And we had a guy across, sitting across from me. He was taking one of my chopsticks and sticking it in his mouth was picking at it. And I like yelled across the room, what are you doing? And he said, well, I got food stuck in my mouth, so I'm using this to dislodge it. I'm like, are you crazy? How am I ever going to use that chopstick again? Like, you know, toothpicks are used with cheap wood. Why? Because you throw it away after you use it. No matter how cheap you are, no one uses a toothpick and then washes it and puts it back. But chopsticks made out of like steel, right? You don't 
use it for a toothpick and then clean it and use it again, I threw that thing away. Right? It's common knowledge. And if you didn't know, that, that brother knows now. But if you didn't know, there's some things for dishonorable use, some things for honorable use. And it's set in stone. It's all determined by the material used to make this vessel. And that's how it is in every house, right? If, if a vessel is made out of cheap Tupperware, right? You know, you made out of cheap plastic, you have a spoon. It's for dishonorable use. Use it once or use it to, like, I don't know, clean things or maybe throw away trash, and it's gone. But if it's made of better material, it's for honorable use, right? for more important use, and repeated, used repeatedly. It's determined by the material. Now, verse 21 is a transition. In the household, it is determined by the material, but in the spiritual realm, it doesn't depend on the material you used. It's not about what you're made of. For believers, our usefulness to Christ is not determined by who we are. We can't say, um, you know, God can't use me because you know, I'm not intelligent. You know, I'm not smart. You know, I'm not articulate. I'm not, I don't have a charismatic personality. I'm not physically strong. You know, I'm not useful to Christ because I didn't go to a certain school or I don't have certain skills, certain abilities. You know, I'm one of those guys, I'm a, you know, I'm a wood and clay Christian. Now I'm a Tupperware, and it's not even Tupperware from a good store. I'm Tupperware from the 99 cent store made in China. I use a few times and it, it deforms, you throw it away. I'm that kind of Christian, so I can't be used. That cannot be said in the Christian world. And conversely, you can't say, oh, I'm going to be used because my dad's a pastor. And I'm special because... In our family, we have generations of pastors. Or my, my parents were leaders in the church. Or I went to a certain school or a certain education. When I went to Taba for a, half, for a semester, um, we had in our class, you know, I'm not going to name his name, but this black preacher's son. And this black preacher was on TV all the time. And he was a very able preacher. One of those guys, God gave him that voice. That thundering voice, charisma, humor. I mean, I would listen to him, and he would move me, even though his theology was questionable. I mean, he was that good. And so his son was at the seminary. He was in our, in our class. And so in our class, people went around and, and uh, kind of did presentations. And it was his turn. And we're all like, man, this guy's the son of that great preacher. It's going to be awesome. And he went up there and spoke, and he had like a Mike Tyson voice. <laughs> It was like a big guy, just like his dad. And his voice was like, what's going on? It was, like almost, it was almost comical. And he was dull. It was boring. It was dry. And I couldn't believe like his dad was his famous preacher. Right? Well, in the spiritual realm, you can't say that. Right? You can't tell by someone's pedigree, someone's, I don't know, height or whatever, physical traits, if you'll be useful to God or not. In the spiritual realm, it's not about uh, the physical material used at all. It's all about um, being cleansed. 
being pure, being holy. It's all the inner man. It's not about externals. It's all spiritual. Look at verse 21. If anyone, right, if any, not a skuas, any person, any believer cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, right, cleanses himself from serving impure things, cleanses himself from pursuing and worshiping and loving, trusting, depending on impure things, having his life set on the purpose of serving the world. If any man, uh, ekathyro, purges himself, right, just purifies himself from this, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. <clears throat> That's the only criterion to be useful to the Lord. Right? Not amazing? That's it. Right? Um, someone asked me years ago, James, uh, you know, what do you want to change about Cornerstone? What are top three things you want to change about Cornerstone? And I said, well, I don't know about Cornerstone, but I know the top thing I want to change about myself. Because the greatest need for Cornerstone is not, you know, they get to do, you know, I stop doing this and start doing that. They got to change in this way or that way. The greatest need of Cornerstone is my holiness. It's my maturity. It's my godliness. My sincere faith. That's the only problem with Cornerstone is my immaturity, my lack of uh, faith in Christ. Because I know that if I am cleansed from dishonorable purposes, then I will be, as a, as a fruit, as the, out of the overflow, I will just be a better Christian, I will be a better husband, I will be a better father, better pastor, better preacher, better friend, maybe better baller, maybe not better baller, but I might be a worse baller. So, But outside of the ball part, I'll be better if I just grew in holiness. And that's not true for me, but that's true for every one of us. If we want to be useful to Christ, the Bible says the only issue is not about intelligence. It's not about in- it's not giftedness. It's not your personality. It's not whether you are, you know, IFNJ or EFTZ. I don't know what those things are. Right? It's not extrovert. It's not those. It's not those things. It's not a- abilities. It's not physical trait. It's not about your upbringing. Only thing. The only issue is, is your heart purity, right? Heart purity. And again, we, we cannot uh, approach verse 21 or verse, and verse 22 with a shallow understanding, with a very, um, very shallow like approach to it, like, oh, it's just you know, external holiness. The issue here is being cleansed, not outwardly, but in the heart. Uh, look at verse 22. It's a specific kind of holiness. Uh, it talks about youthful passions in the ESV. NIV says, evil desires of youth. New American Standard says, youthful lust. The Greek word is epithemia. It speaks of a craving, a passionate desire. That word in and of itself is neutral. It's a neutral word. It's speaking of desire or passion or zeal. Galatians 5.17 speaks of the Holy Spirit having epithemia. Holy Spirit desires that we would bear fruit of the Spirit and walk with Him. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.1, it is 
a good epithemia to desire to be an elder. It is a noble thing he aspires to do. It's a neutral word. Whether it's positive or negative is dependent on its context. Right. Here, it is clearly negative. Here, Paul's talking about not just passing desires, not leading cravings, but cravings that is so rooted and, and deep, entrenched in a person's internal makeup that it is, in a word, idolatry. It is idolatry. And uh, past few weeks, I've been reading um, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And, you know, if it wasn't for our, our bank account, what well, the numbers that it states, I will buy a copy for each and every one of you. I would literally do that. It is such a precious book. Eleven ninety nine, right? So skip two meals. Buy it for yourself. Buy it for your husband. Buy it for your wife. Buy, buy it for, like, just non-believers. Such a great book. And you know, he quotes David Paulison. I actually had read this article before. I got it from the primary source. I read the article this week. And here he connects idolatry of the Old Testament with epithemia of the New Testament. We run, run across this word, word a lot. Craving, passion, desire, epithemia all over the place in the New Testament. And Paulison believes, and I agree, that, the, that epithemia of the New Testament is equivalent to Old Testament word for idolatry. Somewhat lengthy, but let me quote to you what he wrote in his book, Sinful Cravings and Vanity Fair. His article, Sinful Cravings and Vanity Fair. He wrote, Idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. In, in John's first epistle, 1 John, he wrote 105 sentences on having a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And at the end, he closes that epistle with this simple line, Beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, some have said, what is, what is that all about? Some scribe must have added that because it makes no sense. What does idolatry have anything to do with relationship with Jesus Christ? Uh, Paulus wrote, John's last line properly leaves us with that the most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart is one of idolatry. In our hearts, who are we worshiping? What are we trusting in? Who or what is our hope, our confidence? What, is, what are we dependent upon? Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust? preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. It is a question bearing on the immediate motivation of your behavior, your thoughts, your feelings. Who or what rules your behavior? Is it Jesus or is it a substitute? The Bible, he wrote, internalizes the problem, the idols of the heart, and portrays it in Ezekiel 14. In Ezekiel 14, the elders of Israel present themselves before the man of God, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel condemns them because, Thus saith the Lord, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. 
Right? These are elders of the spiritual leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel. They're not bowing down to idols. No, they are worshiping Yahweh externally. But God, the heart searcher, sees through that facade, looks into their hearts, and he says, These men are performing idolatry in their hearts. So the Bible tells us idolatry is not a physical bowing down to, to things fashioned with wood or gold or silver after images of, of created things. No, idolatry more, most often is an issue of the heart. It's an activity of the inner man. The worship of tangible idols is merely an expression of spiritual idolatry that's already taken place. But for sophisticated Christians in the 21st century, we dare not do that outwardly. But idolatry still reigns within. He continues, if, if, quote, idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires, epithemia, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for the same drift. So in the Old Testament, when someone drifted away from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping idols, they called it idolatry. In the New Testament, when someone drifts away from worshiping God, Jesus Christ, to worshiping a created thing, and it could be anything. It could be yourself, your spouse, your children, your house, your car, your job, your income. It could be sex. It could be your, your weight. It could be your, your, your possessions. It could be food. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be a political aspiration. It could be power. It could be ministry. It could be anything. When someone drifts away from worshiping Jesus Christ to worshiping this in their hearts, the New Testament word used is Epithemia. That word describes the same drift, same defection. Both are shorthand for this problem of human beings. New Testament language of problematic desires, epithemia, is a dramatic expansion of the violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods above me. When we have cravings, inordinate passions, desires above God, that is breaking of the first commandment, and that is idolatry. It is uh, the problem of the heart that plagues every single person. No one is immune to this condition. John Calvin called our hearts an idol-making factory, and it comments that idols boil up from within us. It's not, we're not infected from outside, it's from within. It boils up within us. We become infested with idols. This is what Paul is addressing here. Idolatry of our hearts. And again, idols can be Anything. And um, when, when the idols are sinful, it's easier to identify. When your idol is uh, drugs or alcohol or adultery, I mean, even the worst sinner knows, wow, I'm, I'm addicted to this. I'm doing it, but I know it's wrong. I want to quit. 
But the more insidious, the more damaging idol is when there are good things. When you're worshiping something that is good, that is virtuous, maybe even seen as godly. That is uh, more deceptive and more dangerous. Um, Keller wrote, wrote about this in his book, how the central plot device of the Lord of the Rings is the dark Lord Sauron's ring of power. Right, that ring, uh, precious, right? Which corrupts anyone who tries to use it, however good his or her intentions. The ring is what Professor Tom Shipley calls a psychic amplifier, which takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. So some characters in the book are good characters. They want to use the ring to liberate slaves. They want to use the ring to preserve their people's land or, or visit wrongdoers with just punishment. All good objectives, but the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve them, anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute thing that overturns every other allegiance or value and therefore the wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. For an idol is something that we cannot live without. We must have it and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil in Tolkien's book and in real life. That book is a, powerfully depicts the reality of our hearts. Even people have good intentions because the corruption of our hearts, we make that into an ultimate thing and we pervert it, we twist it, and it destroys ourselves, destroys, we lose ourselves, just, just, just destroy others in the process. Now I say this because here we look at that word, evil passions, youthful passions, sinful passions, youthful lust, and immediately, at least for a lot of guys, what we eisegete, what, what we impose to that text is, Paul is talking about sexual desires. Paul is saying here, Timothy, you're a young man. If you want to be used by God, avoid sexual sin. And we kind of impose that meaning onto this text. But again, you know, if I've said anything repeatedly over the past several weeks is that, when we study the Bible, the most important issue to, to, to wrestle with is context. Context determines the, the meaning of the verse. And the context of the, of the passage, the, the book, the, 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 the syntax of the words determines the meaning of the word. So that epithumia cannot be arbitrarily uh, assigned sexual sin when the context is not speaking about sexual sin. What is the context all about? It's about false teachers. It's about uh, false leaders, doctrinal error, heresy, and responding to them, not quarreling, not getting into controversies, not debating with them, not getting angry, not becoming impatient, but gently, patiently, humbly teaching them the gospel, knowing that God is sovereign. So youthful passions... Paul is not talking about sexual sin. Paul is talking about zeal that is even more powerful in a young man's heart that can even in a greater way corrupt him because 
sexual sin, all guys know that's wrong, that's evil. But this is seen as virtuous. Zeal for doctrinal truth. Zeal for biblical fidelity. Doctrinal purity. Zeal for ministry. It's a good thing. But because it can so easily in a young man become a lust, a craving, an inordinate consuming desire that he loses himself in fighting error, so much so he finds himself siding with the enemy. Young man becomes so zealous to contend for the truth and fighting error, and I've been there. He becomes angry. He becomes harsh. He becomes stubborn. He becomes a dictator, and he plows over people. I mean, I've been there. I've done this. Um, someone posted this. There was a soccer game between BYU and New Mexico the other day. A semifinal match, uh, women's soccer, and I saw something I've never seen in sports before. I've never seen this in the NBA, never seen it in the NFL, never seen it in the Major League Baseball. Someone pulls someone by their ponytail, <laughs> right? I don't see that in basketball because you don't usually have ponytails. But man, this 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 gal, Elizabeth Lambert, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was shocking. She was like punching uh, other players. She was kicking them. She was failing her arms, and she sucker punched one of the girls. And the, one, of the, one of the shots they had was there was an uh, offensive player in front of her, pulled her by the ponytail and threw her on the ground. And she was doing this, and uh, the camera was on her recording it. And you know ESPN, they were playing it again and again and again. Put her picture, her name, her address, her phone number, her email. I was like, oh, I'm, right? But... She's trying to win semifinals, and she lost herself so much that so she got angry where she resorted to physical violence. And it's a girl, right? But if you played sports, you understand how in striving to win, that craving, that desire overtakes us that we lose ourselves. And she, in fact, apologized and made a public statement, and she said she, she, she lost herself. She asked for, she apologized to, to everyone. Well, that can easily happen, and that happens to young men. So the greatest need for myself and all young men is to be ekatharial, cleansed, not from sexual sin. That's not the context here. Cleansed from idolatry of self, of pride, of ego, of self-love, of self-worship, and using ministry as a vehicle to achieve that end. Right? Young men are all glory hungry. They want, they're competitive. They want worship. They want, they want to be praised. And oftentimes they become Christians, they serve in the church, and that idol is still in their hearts, that craving, that lust. And so what they do is, the temptation is to use ministry to achieve their own veneration in, in the Christian church. To use knowledge and ministry and theology and the name of all these good things for self-promotion. And because it is a good thing, he has a hard time seeing it. And, and because it is a good thing, Christians have a hard time seeing it, but they promote it. 
The angry you are, you know, the better you are as a leader or as a preacher. So get more angry. And they promote it rather than what Paul is saying. If you want to be useful to the Lord, you have to purge yourself of these idols. Um, A few of the vehicles that young men often use to promote idolatry of self. There are surface idols and there are deep idols. The surface idols are like these things I'm going to mention. But the deep idol, the root idol is self-love, self-worship. The first one is pride and right doctrine. Pride and right doctrine. Let me quote Keller. He said, an idol is something that we look for, look to for things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. Now let me repeat that. That's so important. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. The sign that you have slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers always show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. This is a sign that they do not see themselves as a sinner saved by grace. Instead, reveals that their trust is in their own righteousness and their own knowledge. So a sign of, uh, of this is uh, you are impatient with people, you become frustrated, you become upset, you become angry with those who hold a differing doctrinal view. You withhold grace from them. You withhold gentleness and kindness. You are arrogant, right? You are stubborn, you are loud, and you, you become upset, and you are impatient, and you are self-righteous, and you judge I mean, how many times have I heard Christians say, you know, James, I became a Christian and, uh, and I, I shared the gospel with my parents when I was a young Christian and I did so much harm. I'm trying to make up for that right now. Right? right? I, I've been there. You become a Christian. You learn the gospel and truth. And you want, and you know, out of good zeal, you want to, you want to save your parents, save your siblings, save your coworkers. You start sharing the gospel to them, but their hearts aren't ready for the gospel like you are ready, so they, they're resistant. And instead of being humble and gracious and gentle, your your lusts take over, and you get angry and you say things and you show attitude that is unbecoming of the gospel of Christ. It does not fit adorning the gospel of Christ. And you see the damage that it has done. It's closed their hearts to the gospel and you realize, wow, that the gospel is true but my character wasn't, wasn't right. My attitude wasn't right. So I did more harm than good. Right? So that's a vehicle that often used to promote self. Right? Pride and right doctrine. Right? Second is uh, pride and knowledge. Seeking uh, controversy, seeking debate, seeking quarrel all because they want to uh, show off how much they know for the purpose of self-elevation. A a young man in the church, they don't have many ways to uh, rise in leadership. They don't have wisdom. They don't have, like, life experience. They don't have, like, 
discipline and character conduct that garners respect. So the shortcut way is through knowledge. That's how you get to the front of the line. You study, read, listen to sermons, and by being puffed up in knowledge and knowing a lot, you have this quasi-veneer look of a spiritual leader and you get adherence. And so how do you show off that knowledge? You know, you don't, you can't preach, you can't come up and do, you know, prayer. You know, once you, once you, God like that prays and he prays for five minutes, we never ask him again to pray, right? So he can't. So the way he shows his knowledge is by getting into arguments, getting into controversy, stirring up things, and in that way he shows himself how much, he, shows everybody how much he knows. Now, I've encountered a lot of these guys. One time, years ago, I was there with my wife and we're at a retreat. I was a speaker at a retreat. We're having a meal and this guy asks me, my thoughts about evidential apologetics and presuppositional apologetics over dinner, right? So I'm like, okay. So I took an apologetics class. I read a book or two about whatever he said, right? <laughs> so I'm like talking for a few minutes, and he's not listening. And once I'm done, he starts talking about 10, 15 minutes. And soon as there's a witness about evidentialism, strengths and weaknesses, presuppositional apologetics, strengths and weaknesses, and his synthesis, what he believes. It's the perfect balance between the two for 20 minutes. And we figured out right then, he didn't ask me that question because he wanted to know. He asked me that question because he wanted to tell me what he knew, right? And tell everybody on the table, right, what he knew, right? Um, This is a youthful lust, youthful craving that needs to be purged for a young man like Timothy and me and all of us, to be with the Lord. And then third is um, abusing spiritual authority, right? right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You, get, you give a young man a little bit of power, a little bit of authority, a little bit of truth, and he just becomes like Kim Jong-il, right? And overnight, he becomes Ahmadinejad. He becomes a spiritual tyrant where he wants to enforce doctrinal truth on everyone. He wants to enforce his convictions and everybody line up to what he believes. And it has to be done right now. And he will use everything within his power to have his wife and children or Pebbles Ministry kids or anyone like follow his commands. And a good illustration of this, I guess a good one, hopefully a good one, you decide, is in in. March 10th, 1522, 400 and, I don't know, some odd years ago. I can't do math right here. It was uh, Monday, and Luther was preaching to his seminary students. And I'll just you know, summarize it here. And he had a problem. It was Monday. He had to preach to his seminary students because on that Sunday, his seminary students went rioting in the streets. They went bursting through doors, and they were destroying things. Now, what were they doing? Because they were students of the Reformation, they believed that worship of icons and relics and uh, mass where uh, transubstantiation, where the bread and the wine literally became the body and blood of Christ, was, was against the scriptures, against the Bible. It was against faith. They believed that. And in their zeal for Reformed faith, they went into these homes where they knew that they were not, they were still practicing Catholics, and they went in and they destroyed their icons. They destroyed their relics. 
they forcibly made these men and women recant Catholicism and trust in the Protestant sola, you know, scriptura, fide, gratia, sola Deus, gloria. They did it by force. It was a riot in the streets. Right? So Monday, Luther had to preach to them, and it was a horrible thing. So Luther preached, students, you are right to see the appearance of, abhorrence of this mass. You are right to label it as heresy, as an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. But you are wrong to go into private homes and tear out the altars. Why? Because the Reformation cannot come by force. It can only come by the Word of God. You can tear up the altars and even pull people away from the altars by their hair. But as soon as you leave them, they will put the altar back and to the altar again they will go. You cannot reach their hearts. I cannot pour faith into their hearts. I cannot, nor should I, force anyone to have faith. This is God's work alone who causes faith to live in the heart. Therefore, we should preach the gospel. We should teach the word of God and trust God to save and to sanctify. It's God's work. But young men, because they worship self, they want prominence, they want to be first, because of their glory-hungry nature, they want to use their spiritual authority and lord over people. Right? That's what's a dangerous thing. You know, whether it's the cultural revolution in China, you read about that, and it's crazy what, what happens when you give college students political power. Right? whether it's in the governmental realm or whether it's in the spiritual realm, right? spiritual authority is, is, is uh, disastrous to a young man because of his youthful lust. Right? So Paul tells Timothy, really, there are only two imperatives, two commands here, and two sides of a single coin flee like a fugitive. The Greek word is fuego. Constantly run away from these youthful cravings, right? From the surface idols and from the deep idols. Run away from that deep idol of self-love, self-worship, wanting to be praised. And run away from spiritual pride, pride of knowledge, by wanting authority, abusing authority. Run away from these cravings of the heart that are there and instead pursue, verse 22, right? There is that law replacement, Human beings, we can't handle vacuum. We can't handle like non-movement. We're running away, but we're not to run away aimlessly. While we're running away from our idols, we are pursuing these virtues. Now, virtue pursue righteousness. Now, from the Pauline mind, I don't have time to go through this. In Paul's mind, righteousness is always righteousness of God by faith. It is first and foremost righteousness that God gives and imputes to Christians. He's not talking about now be righteous. Right? Do, do righteous things. Before he's talking about practical righteousness, he's talking about the imputed positional spiritual righteousness that is given by faith alone to every Christian. He's saying, Timothy, pursue righteousness where you stand by faith, not by your works. Right? Pursue faith. Pistis. 
We don't have time. Pursue love. Pursue peace. Pursue these um, uh, virtues, these characteristics while you're running away. And he adds that phrase, along with those, verse 23, verse, verse 23, along with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Right, verse 22. Right. So pursue these qualities. That's why our fellowship is so important. Pursue these qualities with other believers who are also fleeing idolatry. Right? So if someone is pursuing idolatry, you fuego from them, right? You're a fugitive from them. Right? You run with those who are fleeing idolatry and pursuing righteousness. Faith, love, peace. And um, you know, one a pastoral exhortation, pastoral insight is uh you can kind of tell whether someone you're fellowshiping with is uh pursuing fleeing idolatry and pursuing the gospel by grace by your heart response after you meet with them. If after you spend time with them your heart is restless, right, your heart is filled with like anxiety and you feel like you need to do more things, and you're not doing enough, then I would question whether that person you're fellowshiping with is really fleeing idolatry and pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. More, more often than not, if you're fellowshiping with someone and afterwards, your heart is not restless. Your heart is fixed and focused on not what you have to do or what you should not do. Your heart is focused on what God has done. Your heart is fixed on the on grace of Christ, on the gospel of Christ. And so your time was spent in encouraging one another by grace and not by works. So afterwards, your heart is at rest. Your heart is at peace. And that's someone to run the race of faith with. Right. That's someone who's calling the Lord out of a pure heart. That person is someone who's also ekathario, purging himself or herself of youthful lusts and pursuing these right things. Now, you might have noticed, I've, I've talked about verse 21 and verse 22, the first part and the second part, but I left out the second part of verse 21. It's because I believe this is key. right? The latter part of verse 21 highlights the motivation behind the fleeing, behind the pursuing. Someone could flee and pursue with all the wrong motivations. They could flee and pursue out of idolatry, out of legalism, self-centered reasons. Right? They're running away because they want to show how good they are and running away. They want to pursue to show how righteous they are. The motivation for a pure heart is the latter part of verse 21 that he would be a vessel for honorable use. You are fleeing idolatry, you are pursuing these things because you want to be used of God for honorable purposes. Secondly, because you want to be set apart as holy. You want to be only be used by God and not of this world. You want to be sanctified, set apart, consecrated for the use of the Lord. The third and fourth are key. You want to be useful to the master of the house. You want to be useful. You want to be a good instrument. And then finally, 
ready for every good work. Right. Ready for every good work. Uh, you know, very different than a young man who's consumed with these youthful lusts. For him, he has to be used by God. It's not ready. He has to be used. He has to be a servant of Christ, and he has to be used a certain way. And if he's not used in a certain way, then he'll become violent. He'll become angry. He'll become rebellious. And of all the idols I've seen in people's hearts, this idol scares me the most. Because it is such a righteous thing to serve God, to minister, to be a leader, or a caregiver leader, or a part of the praise team, or to be a pastor or a preacher. It are good things that it's so hard for a young man to see their sinful motivations behind it. And I've seen men who were not called, and they have... And, and when you share with them about their sins or their pride or their unfitness for the ministry, they lose themselves. Uh, they become like in the spiritual world, Elizabeth Lambert. They, they lose themselves in their hearts, in their words, their attitudes, in their conduct. Because for them, they have to be right, a pastor. They have to be a spiritual leader. I'm so encouraged when it happens often in our church where we have leaders step down for various reasons. I often, most often for good reasons. They have different stages of life, addition to their family, various the needs of the church have shifted. And they step down from leadership to doing like other ministries and they do it with joy. They do it with contentment. They do it with gratitude. Because for them, their goal is being useful to the master, being used in any way God sees fit and ready for every good work. They're not like, guys will get it, sister, sorry. They're not like Alan Iverson, who's grumbling and complaining because he's not starting, right? I'm not the sixth man. What am I coming off the bench? And he's dividing the team. The heart is, I just want to contribute. I want to be ready. If you call my number, I will serve. If not, I will be cheering you know, the church on from the sidelines. Right? That's the heart of a man who has purged himself of youthful lusts. Right? And that's the motivation given to Paul, given from Paul to Timothy in this passage. How do we do this? How is this possible? It's not just putting on and putting off, but it's trusting in the gospel again. I mean, you're just hammering this again and again. How can we change our motivations? It's impossible. You can change behavior, but you can't change your motivation. It's too complex. It's too deeply rooted. Right? It's too pervasive in our hearts to deal with motivations. The only thing we can do, and the only thing God wants us to do, is believe in Jesus. Right? John 6.35, what is the work of God? The work of God is to believe in Him whom God has sent. What is the single work you and I are called to do? It's not physical ministry. The single work that all Christians are called to do is believe in Christ, is trust in Him 
And He will purge out all these lusts. He will compel us to pursue righteousness. And He will transform our motivations from base motivations to Christ-centered ones. Now, don't close your Bibles. Keep your pen in your hand. If you could just bow your heads right now. Just close your eyes just as you are. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, uh, we've spoken of things this morning by your scriptures, things that are so difficult for us to comprehend just with our human minds. Only enabled by the Holy Spirit and only by you opening our eyes are we able to see and comprehend and understand the scriptures and our hearts, and the role of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our lives to purge us from these lusts and to pursue these right things motivated for your glory. So, Lord, we come to you, and we come before you, not with all these litany of things that we need to now do to make our lives right, so that we might be useful to the Lord, to you. No, Lord, we come to you, and we rest and we look to you, gaze upon our victor, the one who has conquered our sins, the one who was crucified, bruised, pierced on our behalf, our substitute on the cross. We look to you, O Lord, and we trust in you that you will do it in our lives, that you who have secured our salvation will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ, you who saved us will purify us, will purge us, and make us pure. We ask that by doing this, you will make each and every one of us, especially the young men of our church, useful to you, ready for every good work. We pray for the young men of our church. We love our young men. Lord, we boast in our young men. We're so proud of them. But Lord, you would continue to do the hard work, Lord, in the, in the recesses of their, of their hearts and so that they might be men of God who will be useful to you and to your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.